Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to CoronaPod. In this show, we're going to bring you nature's take on the latest COVID-19 developments. And we'll be speaking to experts around the world about research during the pandemic. We're entering a new era now. We have new COVID strategies. There's some new unknowns and we've got a vaccine. Hello and welcome to Coronapod. I'm Noah Baker and joining me this week, I honestly feel like we should have a drum roll because I'm pretty sure people are going to be excited, is reporter extraordinaire Amy Maxman. Amy, welcome back. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So we haven't spoken to you for a while on CoronaPod. And part of the reason for that is that you have been off all over the world reporting a humongous story. And it's a story that we've sort of previewed a bit on CoronaPod. Back in February, we talked about a group, in particular one lab, actually, at that time in South Africa that was copying the Moderna vaccine And you have expanded significantly on that reporting to talk about a really radical approach to try to change the way the vaccine manufacturing works in the global south. Tell us, what have you been off doing? Yeah, so there are lots of groups who are trying to make next generation mRNA vaccines or manufacture other kinds of COVID vaccines. But what I really wanted to get at was something sort of deeper that goes beyond COVID vaccines. So what interested me in the company, Afrogen, that I had written about previously that was making this Moderna vaccine, I wanted to go see what they were up to because that project's pretty interesting because they're not just trying to make a COVID vaccine. They're trying to basically build up capacity to make all sorts of mRNA vaccines for all sorts of diseases in the global south. And they're doing that by working with companies in 15 different countries. So I wanted to go and see what that looks like. And I also was interested in this solution because I thought it would highlight what exactly is the problem here? What is standing in the way of expanding manufacturing for vaccines in other countries? So this is a really important mission. And it's something that the pandemic has really highlighted the kind of disparities that exist here. Where has your reporting been focused to start with? And then let's talk a little bit about the kind of details of what you've been digging into and what this new effort is trying to achieve. Yeah, so basically, I decided to go to South Africa, because that's where the core of this hub is based. To back up a minute, it wasn't just this one small biotech company called Afrogen in Cape Town in South Africa. It's part of this effort founded by the WHO, and it's the mRNA technology transfer hub. And the core of it is kind of this company, Afrogen, in in Cape Town. But the entire hub initiative consists of 
15 other companies in other countries in the global south. And while I was there, I think groups from Brazil and Argentina had just left. And I was there while a group from Indonesia was visiting to learn how Afrogen is making their mRNA vaccine candidate, the one that's based on what we know about Moderna's. But at the same time, they're trying to improve on that vaccine or moreover also make that vaccine so that it would be producible in case Moderna decides to enforce patents. And so that effort includes all sorts of groups. Like I went to a few different universities in South Africa that are helping with this effort. And you also reported from Malawi as well. You know, part of this process is to understand not just what efforts are being made, but the kind of human extent of the problem that exists that that sort of necessitates this, this effort in the first place, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, if you go back, so around in, you know, in 2021, there were these huge problems, which I've talked on Coronapod about before, you know, when we were rolling out booster doses, there were, you know, all sorts of countries, low and middle income countries that had very few vaccines, you know, India, South Africa, Brazil, all of those countries, along with the lowest income countries, had very few vaccines while the richest countries were rolling out third doses. But things sort of changed a little bit over the course of 2021. By late 2021, some of the middle-income countries or upper-middle-income countries, you know, like South Africa, did increase their number of vaccines. It's still quite a lot lower. But still, when I decided I wanted to go report this story in April of 2022, the lowest-income countries still had very few vaccines. So I wanted to see what was life like where here we are two and a half years into the pandemic, Um, There's still countries, I think when I went to Malawi, it was at 5% vaccinated. DRC, South Sudan, those were all like somewhere around 1% vaccinated. So I just wanted to see what is life like there. And it's shocking that their pandemic is back where we were, you know, in December of 2020. And I think one of the things that's really struck me from reading your feature, which I would strongly encourage people to go and read as well as listening to this Coronapod episode, is your experiences in Malawi touch on why this issue goes vastly beyond just COVID, right? Some of the discussions and some of the people you saw there and some of the situations that you experienced show just why access to healthcare or access to locally created, produced, you know, managed healthcare systems is a problem that has existed for a long time. And it needs a bigger solution than just a kind of a COVID emergency response solution. Yeah, exactly. You know, when I went, I really didn't know what to expect. It's the kind of thing where when you're a reporter, I think people will tell you what a situation will be like. For example, people will say, oh, you know, COVID's not the big concern there. And then you never know what happens until you get there. So, you know, sort of what I found was, yes, COVID surged really terribly um, a couple of times in 2021 in Malawi, and it was devastating. But there were a host of other problems. You know, there was poor access to a whole bunch of different medicines and medical technologies and healthcare systems. You know, there were also the results of climate change were seen there. Crops were failed. People were hungry, which also makes people more susceptible to disease. And it makes, you know, diseases like HIV, people who had HIV were doing worse, nurses told me, because they didn't have food to take with their medicines. So all of these inequalities compound. And I don't think a right takeaway is, oh, COVID's not a big deal. The takeaway is inequality is ugly and the effects pile on top of each other. So COVID just sort of unmasked 
this sort of longstanding injustice that we also saw for HIV drugs and that we see for other medicines too. Absolutely. I mean, there's a quote in your story from one of your sources saying we're dealing with four pandemics right now, plus climate change and food shortages, TB, COVID, uh, malaria and HIV. I mean, this is an extreme situation which just goes beyond what many people in the global north might be imagining when they're thinking about a pandemic. Yeah, and I think the reason why this part of it was important for my story, and I have to say it's so hard to like combine all of these things in a story, but the reason why it was important is because the changes that the story kind of calls for, like, you know, changing the patent system and changing the market, having some way to subsidize the cost of vaccines, I wanted to show, well, what what are the stakes here? Look at the cost. Look at the cost of doing things the way that we're doing it right now. Right, absolutely. Okay, so let's get into what those changes might need to be and what the Transfer Hub is trying to achieve. So to start off with, can you do a sentence for me of what the kind of ultimate goal of this project is? I mean, dream situation here. The goal is to have drug and vaccine, starting out with mRNA vaccines, vaccine manufacturing more dispersed throughout the global south. And this hub is looking at more middle-income countries where there's already some infrastructure in place. And those countries would serve other countries in the region. So it's not that Malawi is now going to have a vaccine hub, but if South Africa did, that's very close. It was a two-hour flight to Malawi. It's, they would serve other countries in the region. Right. And fundamentally here, this isn't a case of building a vaccine manufacturing plant in South Africa. This is a fundamentally collaborative project that's aiming to bring many stakeholders from across the global south in a kind of a coordinated way forward, right? Yes. Yeah. So this is different than, say, you know, Moderna or BioNTech has announced building their own plants in other countries in the global south. This would be different because those plants would be owned by Big Pharma, which is based mainly in the West, And therefore, those companies get to dictate the distribution of the shots where they go, whereas the idea here is that these companies are managed by the countries where they belong. And that is really fundamental here to why this potentially could be a game changer and why you've described it as a radical move, you know, to disrupt Big Pharma in just the headline of your your feature is to try to regain some power about how vaccines are created, which vaccines are created, and which problems you're trying to solve, right? They can be more tailored towards the needs of the people in in the areas where the vaccines are being created. Yeah, exactly. So they're starting with mRNA vaccines against COVID, because that's kind of a proof of concept, really. Surely, if you wanted to make mRNA vaccines against COVID as fast as possible, this isn't the fastest solution. This is a long-term solution. So the goal here is ultimately to make these mRNA vaccines, but then you know, maybe make vaccines against measles or mRNA vaccines against dengue or other kind of viral diseases. And we should mention here that we're talking about mRNA vaccines. There's a very specific reason there, which is this new kind of platform technology that feels not new anymore, but it is actually still very relatively new in terms of production, is fundamental to the the kind of future of this project. This is what's allowing this project to be able to, to take off. Yeah. So we've said it's a worthy goal to try to create these hubs. I don't think that anyone will be under any illusions that this is as simple as, okay, let's just make some then. Let's start with one of the first problems that that the people that are trying to set these hubs up are going to come across, which is technology, knowledge, access. How are these groups getting hold of the research they need or carrying out the research they need to be able to create these kinds of vaccines? Yeah, so, you know, originally, 
the WHO was hoping that Moderna, Pfizer, BioNTech, the makers of the main vaccines we have, would cooperate and ideally license their vaccine technology. There's lots of kind of components of these vaccines and also share their knowledge or at least share their knowledge, you know, how they did what they did, what was the equipment they used, what were their results along the way when they did safety and efficacy studies. That was the original hope. Those companies decided they do not want to cooperate, so they haven't. Then the next step was, okay, we're going to recreate Moderna's vaccine, partly the reason being because so much of this foundational work was actually done by universities and by the NIH. A lot has in the public domain. And they had help from a lot of those researchers who did the foundational work. You know, I spoke with Barney Graham at the NIH, who was one of the leaders for some of this foundational mRNA research, and he's working with the hub actively. He's an active advisor. In addition to that, the reason why WHO chose South Africa is because there were already labs working on mRNA there. So they already had some familiarity. Right now, they've made more of the vaccine candidate, we'll call it, since I wrote about this in March. And now they're doing studies on animals. At the same time, they're kind of upgrading their facilities because you'll have to have different high-grade facilities um, that meet all sorts of safety standards in order to make vaccines that will go into humans. So that's sort of the process they're in right now. But, you know, there's like, for, for little details, it's kind of interesting. For example, there's a machine that makes this lipid nanoparticle. That's the mixture of lipids that protects the mRNA. And so they have a few different of these machines that make the lipid nanoparticle, but they pointed out their sort of newest model to me and they were very excited because someone at Afrogen combed through whatever material they can find about how these mRNA vaccines are made. Somebody saw a CNN documentary about the making of Pfizer's vaccine and they saw the make and model of this piece of equipment and immediately put it in order. So it's sort of like that. It, it takes a lot of work. Yeah, that really struck me when I read that. I, actually, it's if you're not going to get cooperation from these pharmaceutical companies that have done so much of this R&D, then one way to do it is just to sort of see if you can see it in some news footage. And that's the way to get forward. It just feels like an incredible uphill battle. But that is you know, what these kind of committed team of researchers have been doing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And we should say that this hub is centred in South Africa, but there are other biotech companies, other universities from many different countries that are aiding in this, sometimes which have specialisms in different areas of this. So there may be a lipid nanoparticle specialist, for example. Um, and so they're trying to kind of pull resources and expertise here to, for one kind of core goal. So just as this story was going to press in July... Uh, the NIH made a formal announcement that they would be collaborating with the hub in helping them make mRNA vaccines and sharing their knowledge and being a formal advisor. That's super interesting because if you know on the side, you know, there's been lawsuits between the NIH and Moderna over some of the foundational technology. So it's interesting that clearly NIH feels it's worth sharing. So there are scientists who want to see this shared. I talk with some of them. You know, there's a lot of scientists who got into this work because they want to save as many lives as possible. And so they're even a bit frustrated with sort of the hoarding of information. So these groups of scientists are trying to gather together the expertise, gather together the resources, order in the equipment they need, and they're making, you know, 
startlingly quick progress. One of the other big hurdles they need to overcome is a regulatory one, right? So they also need regulators local to where they are to approve the processes that they're developing and the the facilities that they're building to make sure that they are safe and appropriate for developing medical technologies. How quickly is that happening? There's a kind of like a column of challenges that are challenges, but doable. I would put science there and I would put regulatory there as well. Specifically, the WHO thought about what is the regulatory system like in these countries and they're helping them ramp them up. So right now, Afrogen was aiming to have its new facility for manufacturing human vaccines approved by like the end of this year. But I've just heard they've had some issues in getting certain pieces of equipment. Things are back ordered, supply chain issues. So they're now thinking it might have to be not until early next year. Okay, so this is the column of difficult but achievable. I'm very interested to move to the the next column along. And I'm instantly interested to know what you're calling that column. But I'm going to suspect that the word patent could be a significant part of that column. Exactly. So, you know, the surprising thing is, right, there's the doable. And then I'll tell you the part that I find most interesting. And a reason why I wrote this entire feature was the column that's maybe the reason why this hub will fail. We hope not, but it is also pointing out what are the real blockades here. And so one of the things in that column is intellectual property. So that includes patents. It also includes trade secrets. So when I was there, when I was at Afrogen in April, one of the phrases you hear is freedom to operate. So even though they've copied Moderna's vaccine, that's kind of like a proof of concept, but they don't want to just infringe patents. So patents come into play when they decide they want to sell the vaccine. And that's when there could be lawsuits. So they need to have the freedom to operate. And that means either getting Moderna to say, it's okay, we will license you this technology in a secure way, not just sort of promises, or find a way to make a slightly different lipid nanoparticle or make a slightly different sequence of mRNA or slightly different, all these different aspects. I think more than 80 patents are on aspects of mRNA vaccines slightly different ones so that they won't infringe on intellectual property. And that's actually a very difficult thing. The hub is talking with other companies that are making next generation vaccines, seeing if maybe they can license some technologies from them. One researcher that I saw in Johannesburg at the University of Wits, he told me it's sort of like recreating the wheel. I mean, not only are they trying to make an mRNA vaccine, which is in itself hard enough, but it has to be one that doesn't step on all of these landmines. Absolutely. I mean, it's something that you just don't imagine people are going to have to think about when they're trying to do research into something that could be a life-saving you know, treatment or preventative or prophylaxis or vaccine or whatever you are looking at. Is, is it different enough to get around this piece of paper that I have written down here? Yeah, exactly. So that is unfortunate. And even though the medicines patent pool will you know, think of compromising licensees, I should say, where they pay a fee, hopefully not too high a fee for a license. And there could also be agreements about where you can sell. You know, you could say, listen, your market is rich countries. We won't sell to Americans or something. You got that market. That market pays the most. That's sort of what they were hoping for. But, you know, not only have the big companies, Moderna, Pfizer, BioNTech, not chosen to license any of their technology, but on top of that, one thing that I learned while reporting this is that Moderna sort of quietly won patents in South Africa, I think also in Brazil, that are really broad on mRNA vaccines. 
So in kind of their actions, they seem to be holding on to that market. And what I've been told is that some of these patents that they got, which they don't have in a number of other countries, are so broad that they could potentially make it so that nobody can make any mRNA vaccines. And so IP, I think it's probably important that we talk about this as holistically as we can. And IP doesn't just exist so that there can be you know, this kind of caricature of your evil money-grabbing hoarder. You know, IP exists as a way to try to incentivize and protect huge investment by these companies. And so it isn't just as simple as IP equals bad, IP equals money-grabbing, however you might be portrayed on social media, for example. Right. So the argument is, if we didn't have such strong protection for IP, there wouldn't be innovation. And I think there's a number of people, of course, there's all sorts of points of view, but there's a number of people who think it's not that IP bad, um, there are reasons to have it. R&D takes a massive amount of investment. There's a lot of projects that fail. So you want people to, companies to be reimbursed for what they invent. But when there are life-saving interventions, that's when it gets sticky. People will compare, you know, we don't want vaccines to be like a luxury handbag. People don't have the luxury handbag. They're not going to die. People will die without these vaccines that we're talking about or without HIV drugs. So the question is, you know, there is a conflict here between health and IP protection. So where do we find that balance? I think the reason why I bring up Moderna a lot in my story, it's not just because that's the vaccine that the hub has copied, but also a ton of, you know, foundational work was done with public investment. And then the U.S. government paid, you know, somewhere around a billion dollars for them to conduct their clinical trials. So their investment into that vaccine was largely paid for by the public. Last year, Moderna reported 18 billion in revenue. And this year, the forecast is for 19 billion. So it's made a ton of money. There's been three billionaires that have stemmed from Moderna's profit off of this vaccine. The CEO just got stock worth 922 million. So the question is, how much profit is enough? I mean, for sure, the profit that they have made off of this vaccine far exceeds the amount of investment put in. So the question is, what is the right system? Can that be changed depending on the countries and the situation and the product? And is that modified at all when there's public investment that goes into the process? Is there any agreement to either pay back that investment or to devote some percentage of your profit to something that is in the public's interest. Exactly. So that would be the kind of thing that people would want. There's groups like Public Citizen in the US that have tried to even look at those contracts that the government signed with Moderna to say, what is it that was promised in that contract? And going forward, what can be promised? But there are times in which you can selectively waive IP. That's one thing that was proposed, actually, at the World Trade Organization. Did we ever get anywhere with that IP waiver that was proposed in the WTO? Right. This was proposed by South Africa and India in 2020 to waive IP on COVID vaccines, drugs and diagnostics. The U.S. endorsed it, along with a, a number of other countries. The European Union was strongly against it and remained against it. And they finally reached an agreement in June or July. But from everyone I talked to, it's kind of thought of to be neither here nor there. It's extremely watered down. There's some bits of it that have to do with exports, but it, it, it's definitely not the waiver that people were looking for. So this IP discussion, there is a broader background here, and I think it's probably worth discussing it. So the reason that these problems exist all comes down to legislation called the TRIPS Agreement. 
give us a little bit of background here because I think it's important for us to understand the kind of scale of the problem that this new group is facing. Yeah, so the TRIPS agreement began being negotiated in the 80s. It was always controversial. You know, mainly it was developing countries that were against it. Also, a lot of economists, a lot of scientists said this was a dangerous agreement. Basically, it began when the pharmaceutical industry lobbied the U.S. government saying we need to have stronger patent rules around the world. At that time, there was a generics drug industry just kind of growing in India and Brazil. And so seeing that as sort of a threat to their market, uh, they lobbied to say, how are we going to do this? They decided to move this into trade laws, which wasn't like necessarily intuitive, but they worked on the WTO at the World Trade Organization, get it so that all countries belonging to the WTO would agree to respect a common set of patent laws. Like you must respect patents for a minimum of you know 20 years, and there's a number of them. It finally got through in 1995. And as many economists predicted, as you referenced, quite quickly, the TRIPS agreement was challenged and caused a lot of problems, sort of late 90s, early 2000s. And that came with the HIV epidemic. Exactly. That's kind of a real world example of where TRIPS started to trip up, I suppose. Not to trivialize yeah, it. Sorry. Exactly. Exactly. So for anyone who hadn't been watching like trade law, which certainly would have been me, HIV epidemic is when this really came into the public eye, because that's when we had the epidemic was really escalating around the world. And a lot of countries that were poorer did not have access at all to antiretroviral drugs. So this was Southern Africa, Eastern Africa, there was a lot of death back then. And there's sort of a graph I show in the piece where you just see this widening divide where quickly upwards of 50% of people with HIV in rich countries have access to HIV drugs. And it's just zero up until like 2005 in much of the global South and particularly in Southern Africa and Eastern Africa. And at some point around 2000, there was a bill proposed in South Africa to say we need to import low-cost drugs, which were being made in India. And Pfizer threatened a lawsuit. The U.S. threatened sanctions, saying, you know, the argument was that this was breaching the TRIPS agreement. That lawsuit never happened because there was huge public outcry. But, you know, those years are important. And, and I think, to me, what's interesting is people will say, oh, well, you know, now there are HIV drugs. Or just like now, oh, well, maybe... Maybe in five years, these countries will have enough COVID vaccines, but that's a lot of years. That's a lot of lives lost. And so when you talk to people, when I talk to people in South Africa and Malawi, I've talked to people in Uganda who remember that time, it was like everyone knows multiple people that died during that time. Meanwhile, when there were really good HIV drugs that can lead people to have long lives, they were completely inaccessible in these countries. And it's those deep scars, which I think are is the key response. People in these countries have that memory. And it really underlines why there is such a strong appetite to try to divorce themselves from the control of these big pharmaceutical players. Exactly, exactly. So a lot of the people I spoke to in these, these medicines access advocates they got their start during the early 2000s HIV crisis. And yes, they very much think there needs to be self-reliance. You can't just rely on you know, the goodness of the hearts of people in Big Pharma or the global north to suddenly make charity, make everything okay. Yes, it's needed right now because the capacity doesn't exist, but it's a terrible system. I mean, it fails every time. There's always a time lag, you know? 
I wonder where monkeypox vaccines won't be right now. You know, they're not going to be in the global south. So because especially in an emergency, countries will hoard what they have. Yeah, absolutely. And we saw that writ large through the pandemic. Many, many countries that were producing vaccines actively put essentially bans on exporting those vaccines to other places until they had enough to support their own communities. And to an extent, you can understand that, right? An elected government that has a responsibility to protect its own citizens is going to prioritise its own citizens. But if you have a system that is built entirely on those countries also supplying other countries, you will always, always have a lag as a result. There is no amount of kind of legislation that can stop that happening. Right, exactly. So for a moment, let's do a bit of thought experiment, which is let's imagine that the that this program has got the science it needs. It's found a way around the patent problem, either by creating new technology that, 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 that gets around issues of IP or using elements of licensed IP from other pharmaceutical companies or some combination of the above. That isn't the end of the story, right? you've now got the ability to create these vaccines. Imagine that we've also created the plants needed to to ramp it up. We've got through the clinical trials and we funded all of this. There's still a problem that exists. And that is when we think about vaccines in the context of a market, right? It's another place pharmaceutical companies can continue to exert a lot of power. Yeah. So I think, you know, the way that efforts like this have failed in the past, because there have been efforts to have vaccine during influenza. There was an effort to make vaccines in um, various countries and Argentina. Um, there's been efforts in South Africa before. Efforts can fail because newer companies that are established in places where there's not a huge pharmaceutical sector already, those vaccines might cost more initially. In fact, they almost certainly will cost more initially. Uh, you know, just getting goods to various African countries. Uh, will cost more. Those imports are expensive. Also, established companies have been working with the companies that make raw materials and equipment manufacturers for a long time. So they already have those relationships, so they can often get a deal. They make at bigger scales. They can produce more cheaply. And something I also learned about, big companies can knock smaller companies out of the market by dropping their prices because they can afford to do so. You know, similar with the patent thing, I was talking with other people who study this and Big companies can also decide we're going to just go ahead and infringe on a patent and we have the capital to handle a lawsuit if that comes up. Smaller companies can't do that. They don't have this initial capital up front. So that is a way that you can knock a competitor out. You just offer a much lower price. And then when you're a government, or we can also talk about groups that purchase for countries that don't have a large GDP when you are looking to buy the most vaccines for your buck, you're going to go for the cheapest vaccine, which will not be the locally made vaccine. And that way, these companies would have to shut down. And the whole point of this whole project is to have sustainable manufacturing, not just one company that makes COVID vaccines and then goes away. Precisely. And it's very hard to imagine how you could, you know, even through the World Trade Organization, for example, legislate to prevent that from happening. There are kind of anti-monopoly laws that exist. There are price controls that exist. There are price caps that exist. But how on earth could you say uh, you're not allowed to lower your prices to protect these companies? Because how can that be an ethical thing to do for the people that need to buy the vaccines and they need to access them for their people? Yeah, so that's that's not a way forward. The kind of the thing that would need to happen would be that governments would need to say, we are willing to pay a price premium to have locally made vaccines 
because we think it's good for the world. It could be the governments of countries in low and middle income countries could say, we'll pay a price premium. I spoke to one person in South Africa's science and technology agency, and she said that South Africa's government would pay a premium to be able to have locally made vaccines because they very much want this. But South Africa is a very small part of the African continent, something like 4% of all people. So that would help for that country, but it's actually a somewhat small country. That's a huge amount of big picture thinking that we're asking for here as well. I mean, there is a kind of a perversion in my head that in order to create long-term sustainable and security, I suppose the poorest countries in the world will have to decide to pay more in order to create that sustainability. That's a very big ask, right? It is. One way this could happen is so there's the Vaccine Alliance Gavi, and they actually purchase for many dozens of low-income countries. For most African countries, somewhere around 40 African countries, they purchase vaccines. And they are comprised of, their board is comprised of multiple people. I think some of the biggest contributors to Gavi are the UK, the US, and the Gates Foundation. So they are the ones who actually buy for low-income countries. So they would need to have approval from that board to say, we will pay more for vaccines because we want to support these efforts. Also, I talked to Gavi and, you know, Gavi also takes orders from the countries it supports. So even though South Sudan and Malawi and DRC aren't really purchasing their own vaccines, Gavi would also need those governments to push very strongly and say, we want to buy, say, hypothetically, we want to buy South Africa's vaccines. So it needs both the push from the countries it supports and the push from the donors who would be willing to provide enough money so that they don't have to cut their vaccine supplies in order to buy locally made vaccines. It feels like there is an almost impossibly large number of moving parts that all need to align to make this work. And that makes me nervous, right? We mentioned earlier on there are reasons that this might fail. Are there too many moving parts? Are there too many big asks? Are there too many big picture thinking questions that are going to be asked of people that are trying to deal with potentially a crisis, a medical crisis, a healthcare crisis, for this to succeed? Is it going to fail? You know, I think you can only be hopeful. And I think it's worth pointing out. I spoke to an IP expert. And one thing he mentioned is this did happen in other countries. Not every country began with a very strong patent system. In fact, a lot of countries that didn't have a lot of pharmaceutical capacity had a lot of public funding up front, were not profitable in the beginning, and decided to not enforce IP initially. This happened, you know, he told me all about it. This happened in Sweden. This happened in Germany. This happened in Japan. And most recently, it's kind of how China got off the ground. They didn't really start enforcing strong IP until they had their own sector to protect. That's something you do once you've got an established system. So it's not completely insane to say, wouldn't it be crazy to have public investment in this sort of project? What it needs is people to feel that the stakes are really important and that it would help all of us if every part of the world could protect itself, that that would be a net good. I think I spoke with Larry Brilliant, who was an epidemiologist who helped eradicate smallpox. And one thing he said, and I'll paraphrase this, is yes, having vaccine capacity everywhere and having a broader distribution of vaccines, that's a moral good. 
but it's also strategic. You know, Omicron arguably came from Southern Africa. We are going, the, the more people who don't have vaccines, the more likely outbreaks are to spread, the more likely variants are to spread. It's a net good for everyone to be able to protect themselves. In a story this big, this complicated and this nuanced, especially when the battle is so giant and the uphill climb is so long, I have to say it, it's it's really encouraging to talk to you, Amy, because you've managed to bring hope still into that list of difficulties <laughs> that we've just been through. And I'm going to just choose to come away from this conversation with hope for the future and with an excitement for what, what could be a really game-changing uh, process, I suppose, for these countries that are involved in this. We're going to have to watch this space to see if it comes through and maybe maybe in five years time bring you back on to I'm gonna hope let's be honest that there's no corona pod at that point but onto the podcast <laughs> to discuss how this process has worked and um, hopefully not the pandemic that it's now trying to tackle Amy thank you so much for joining us ever thank you so much it's such a pleasure hi I'm Daniel founder of pretty litter did you know Cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain. I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.